0: My text for today is in a very familiar passage, John chapter 3, John chapter 3, and we'll be particularly looking at Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in the first 10 verses, and this conversation is concerning the new birth. This is an important passage, and uh, frankly, it's one that even many non-Christians are familiar with and can quote from. Uh, And it's important because it's Jesus the teacher teaching the teacher of Israel. Certainly Nicodemus was a uh, renowned individual and he would have been the one that was used to answering the questions. Those people in Israel and in Jerusalem would be coming to him uh, for questions such as God, the law, the kingdom. And now he's going to be finding himself with the tables turned where he's going to be left asking the questions and left confused. It's a popular passage, like I said. Uh, It's a familiar passage, um, but I do think that it's a passage that gets misconstrued and gets taken out of context and one that's worth going over frequently. Before we jump into the text, however, we need to uh, get a little bit of context and a little bit of background. So we need to look at chapters 1 and 2. I'm just going to do kind of a brief overview of what John has to say. So in John 1, the Holy Spirit is the author and John is the writer. And if you remember in the first chapter, he lays out this great treatise of the deity of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then we're introduced to uh, John the Baptist Followed by the the Word made flesh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. John then begins discussing Jesus's earthly ministry. Uh, he performs the miracle at Cana where he turns water into wine, and then at the end of chapter two, uh, he's in Jerusalem for the Passover, and he's gone to the temple and thrown out the money changers from the temple, and this has caused a stir. Throughout Jerusalem, bringing up questions, Uh, there are many people who are following Jesus because of the miracles that he's done, but there's an atmosphere throughout the people of of questions and and wondering what's really going on here. So it's kind of within that atmosphere that we find Nicodemus coming to Jesus in chapter 3 here. So John chapter 3, verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And we know as a Pharisee, uh, this would be an individual who was zealous for the law. In fact, he would have most of the law and the prophets memorized. Uh, We know that Jesus was consistently questioned by the Pharisees as they loved to flaunt their religion. They were legalists in every sense of the word. And Jesus called them whitewashed sepulchres, who have the appearance of beauty on the outside, but on the inside are filled with dead men's bones. So, as we read here, we see that uh, there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus and a ruler of the Jews. So, not only is he a Pharisee, but he's also a ruler of the Jews, which would mean he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and as such, would have had a very prominent uh, status, a prominent individual in Jerusalem. He would have been looked to for leadership, for guidance. And um, Jesus, actually in verse 10, which we'll get to, calls him a teacher of Israel. So it's important we understand the status that uh, Nicodemus has as he comes to Christ here, that he represents the best and brightest that uh, education has to offer within Jerusalem. So he typifies someone at the highest level, and yet he's going to be left confused by what Jesus has to say in nature of the kingdom and the new birth. Which goes to show, as we talk a lot about here at GCA, that Christianity is a revealed religion. And no amount of education can necessitate that or qualify that. Nicodemus, though he has been very well educated, probably would have been, you know, because he is one of the highest educated individuals in Jerusalem, therefore, throughout the globe, really, at that time. But yet, he doesn't recognize who Jesus is, the King of Kings, in front of him. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. That's an interesting point. Why did he come to Jesus by night? Well, as a man of such high status and such high esteem, he certainly would have had a uh, reputation to uphold among the Pharisees. And so he was risking a little bit of that reputation by coming to Jesus, by inquiring of Jesus, which tells you a little bit about the Pharisees and uh, the degree in which they regarded Jesus. And it also confirms what we read in much of the Scriptures, that association and alignment with Jesus Christ often comes at a price. There's usually risk involved. The world does not want to hear the truth of Jesus Christ. The world does not want to acknowledge Jesus Christ. And if you are going to align yourself with him, expect there could be a price for that. So Nicodemus opens up with his greeting to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him." On the surface it sounds like a, a nice cordial greeting, but it also kind of sounds a little bit like it's a setup to you kind of feel like there's a butt coming, but we've all been there before where someone comes up to us and, and kind of compliments us in a nice way and you're just thinking, well, what's the rub? What what are they what are they after here? I do that to Jeff all the time when I say, Jeff, you're so smart, but how can you help me with this theological question? So so it sounds a little bit of, of a uh, like a setup there. But the biggest problem with his greeting to Jesus is that he miscategorizes Jesus, and he doesn't recognize him for who He is, the Christ, the Messiah, God of very God. He, he categorizes him as a teacher. He saw the signs. He admits he's seen the signs. We know, because of the signs that we see, that you are a teacher come from God. But yet he still doesn't recognize that he is the Christ. So he has the education, he has all the learning, and he has seen the signs and he has Jesus in front of him. He should have everything that he needs to be able to having being familiar with the prophets, being know what they've written about. He should be able to put that together, which is just further proof that Christianity by necessity must be revealed. If you're going to know Christ, you must know him as he had revealed. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, he says, All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son will reveal him. That's what we're talking about, Revelation. So, Nicodemus, in his greeting, says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answers him, and his answer, his reply here is uh, rather fascinating. And I think really to to kind of fully understand it, we need to get a little bit of context um, from the end of chapter 2. We look back at chapter 2 at the the very end in verse 23. Many are following Jesus because of the miracles. And then uh, in verse 24 and 25, read, But Jesus, on His part, was not entrusting Himself to them, meaning He didn't have faith or confidence in them. For He knew all men, He knew their hearts, and because He did not need anyone to testify concerning Him, for He Himself... Knew what was in all men, so Jesus knew the hearts of these individuals. He knew that what whether they were following him was either because of genuine faith or because they were just interested in seeing the miracles that he was doing. And I believe that's a little bit uh, of what he recognizes in Nicodemus here. He knows Nicodemus is coming to him for a reason, and he knows what's on Nicodemus's mind. So he really kind of just reads Nicodemus's mind and cuts right to the chase with his answer or with his reply to nicodemus he says truly truly i say to you unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of god i just imagine nicodemus mind had to be blown here first that jesus just read his mind cold and the, secondly the the very thing that he's taught so much on the, what he's familiar with what he's longing for looking for in the kingdom Well, Jesus just tied a requirement to it of a new birth, which had to be totally foreign to his concept and to his worldview. So I would imagine that uh, his head had to be spinning at that point. What is this being born again tied to the kingdom? So Jesus responds, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God by saying, verily, verily, or truly, truly, uh, Jesus is making a strong, emphatic truth claim, implying that what follows is absolutely reliable, because he has first-hand knowledge and authority to speak on it. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now we need to talk about the phrase born again here. Um, it is a Well, we know born, to begat, to uh, bring forth in birth. And the word here that's translated again is in the Greek, anothen. And uh, it can be translated either again or from above. And in fact, if you look here just down in the chapter, verse 31, it says, he who comes from above is above all. The word above there is the same word, "Anathon." So there's some debate and some controversy over the word, whether it should properly be tran- translated again or from above. Whichever it is, and it's not my goal to try to settle that today, it, it's clear as Jesus continues to describe the new birth that what he is not talking about is a one-for-one copy of original natural birth which is kind of where Nicodemus takes it but it's clear that he's talking about a miraculous spiritual new birth or regeneration so when Jesus talks about it he's not talking about just a, a quantity and in, in again he's talking about a miraculous new birth and he, and he ties it to a requirement a necessity that it must happen actually in fact Um, If we look at verse 7, a little later on, he's going to say to Nicodemus, and he kind of repeats this idea of the new birth and expands on it, and he says, do not be amazed when I say to you, you must be born again. So it's of necessity. This has to happen. This is something that is required for entrance into the kingdom. So he places that emphasis on it. It's a non-negotiable Requirement for entrance into the kingdom. Back to verse 3 here. Uh, it's interesting also here in verse 3 that what Jesus says is that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, see the kingdom of God. Later on in verse 5, when he expands on that, he, he talks about, Unless you are born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So why does he say, see the kingdom of God here in verse 3? Well, one possibility is that uh, he's responding directly to what Nicodemus originally said in his greeting. Uh, If we go back and, and read that again, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are come from God as a teacher... For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus is placing his verification, his authentication on who he perceives Jesus to be by what he has seen through the signs. And it appears that Jesus is replying to him saying, Okay, Nicodemus, you think you know who I am by what you see in terms of signs and miracles, but I'm telling you, you can't even see or visualize the kingdom unless you have this new birth, this being born again. So he's kind of playing off of his concept of seeing, uh, seeing the signs. It really goes to show that observing signs and miracles are not the litmus test for genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees that foolish and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but none shall be given but the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the uh, belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man in the heart of the earth. Seeing a sign is not the litmus test for genuine faith, and we know that too because the devil can also do... Many wondrous signs. We know in the book of Revelation, the beast and the false prophet, they do just that. They do wondrous signs and they perform great signs and in turn deceive many people. So, observing miracles and, and signs are not the litmus test for proving genuine faith in Jesus Christ. What does Jesus tell Peter when he asks Peter, Who do you say that I am? Peter replies, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. So many people followed Jesus because of the signs, but they quickly went away because they did not have genuine faith through signs. So Jesus is saying the same thing here, that because of what you see in these signs, Nicodemus uh, that doesn't mean that you know who I am. Obviously, I, he is the king, the king of the kingdom standing in front of him. And uh, if he wishes to see the kingdom, he must be born again, or born from above, or have the new birth. It is a revelatory, regenerating work in which God makes himself known intimately and personally with his new creation. We are his workmanship, we are the passive party. So Nicodemus is going to reply to this mind-blowing comment that Jesus just made about the kingdom and and the necessity of the new birth to see it. And he's going to say, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? It's it's easy to... uh, kind of react to Nicodemus' reply and, and, and think, wow, you obviously didn't get that. That, that went over your head, Nick. Um, but when we think about it, Nicodemus' reply is very revealing about human inclination to gravitate towards legalism, especially for someone as himself, as a Pharisee, who prides themselves on law-keeping and human merit. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you cannot, and Nicodemus turns around and says, but how can I? He totally takes it the other way. Jesus says, you cannot enter unless this miracle of the new birth happens. And he's still, because his mind is so absorbed, and entrenched in legalism, he's, he floats the absurd question of, can I re-enter my mother's womb in order for this to happen? Because He's fixated on human accomplishment on being able to do it himself forging his own destiny he's determined to try to enter the kingdom by doing and this isn't just true of Nicodemus this is the, uh, the natural human mind, this is all of our minds this is, this is the fallen human state from Adam and Eve in the garden recognizing their sin and sowing fig leaves together as to try to justify themselves before God to really all the, uh, all the world's religions, human merit is, is kind of the main ingredient. Saying the shahada in Islam and praying five times a day as a way to be accepting and appeal to Allah. To uh, saying something like a sinner's prayer or walking down an aisle in some synergistic perversion of what Christianity is in order to get born again. The theme is the same. It's, it's legalist human effort, human merit and it's man-glorifying and not God-glorifying. The truth is that apart from God's revelatory work through the Holy Spirit, the human mind will always gravitate towards legalism. Always. It's the modus operandi of the human mind. To stubbornly cling and place hopes in its own works, in its own merit, because if it can claim Something on its own, it feels it's earned it, and if it has earned something, it can take pride in it. In it. So it becomes an issue of, of pride. And, and we find that, uh, as Jesus said, those who said to Jesus, have we not done many wondrous works in thy name? And he replies, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Not about works, not about doing, not about human effort, not about figuring out how to re-enter your mother's womb in order to be born again. And I do want to say here as well that I'm not making a uh, call on Nicodemus whether he's born again or elect. I I, I don't know that. I'm just interpreting what he's saying here. We do know that later on in John, when the chief priests and Pharisees are trying to bring in Jesus, that uh, uh, Nicodemus actually stands up for him, says, this man needs to be heard. Our law requires that he is heard before he is uh, tried. And we also know that Nicodemus was with Joseph of Arimathea after the crucifixion, uh, contending for the body of Jesus Christ and contributed a large amount of spices for the preservation of his body. And there are other, lots of extra-biblical accounts about Nicodemus, too, that say that after he ended up losing his status his position because he was following Christ but those are extra biblical accounts we, we don't know for sure and I'm not going to try to speculate I'm just interpreting you know, what he's saying in the conversation here so Jesus replies to uh, Nicodemus here after Nicodemus questions whether he can re-enter his mother's womb and Jesus answers truly truly I say to you Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus responds to Nicodemus' question, and he essentially is doubling down on what he's already said with a little more information. Uh, There's a couple things, really three different things that he's saying here. He expands on the idea of the new birth being through the Spirit, and he's going to Talk about that in in greater detail, and we'll discuss that in in the coming verses here. But now he's also said, enter the kingdom this time, instead of saying, see. So he's painting a more fuller picture. And he's saying, not only can you not visualize and see the kingdom, but you can't enter, the, the access is not possible without the new birth, without the miraculous work of the Spirit. And then he also says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That statement, born of water, there's a lot of uh, controversy centered around it as well. And again, it's not my intention to try to jump into the middle of that and try to sort that out. But since he did talk about it, I think I do need to address it a little bit. And kind of the way I've planned on doing that is to give you... Three different possibilities on on what being born of water could mean here uh, in Jesus' statement. Actually, it's it's more of one, which I ruling in the negative, ruling out doesn't mean this, and then two other possibilities. Uh, before jumping into those, I think it's interesting to note too that as Jesus continues in his conversation with Nicodemus, he really pla- places the focus on defining and describing the born of the spirit part. He's going to give us the uh, uh, the wonderful analogy in verse 8 of the, of the wind and the spirit and the comparison there. Um, but he really doesn't do that with the born of the water part. So that's kind of how I want to treat it as well and focus on that part. But like I said, I think we, we do want to look at it. We do want to know what it could potentially mean here. So the first... Like I said, uh, I want to talk about what it does not mean, and that that is baptism. Certainly this would be a verse that many can go to and and will go to to try to state that uh, baptism is a necessary act or a necessary condition that is required for salvation. And they'll say what Jesus is saying here is that being born of water means baptism, and thus baptism is necessary for regeneration. The problem with this is we don't have any other scripture teaching this. We do have other scriptures commanding us to be baptized, but not in in a way that uh, it merits or initiates salvation. Instead, we have scriptures telling us things like, by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It can't be baptism, because baptism is something yourself would do. It is a gift, Of God, not of works, it's hard not to classify baptism as as something that you do as a work, least any man should boast. For the exact express reason that a man could boast, works are removed. So the test then becomes, if it's something you could say you've done, therefore you could say you've boasted it. So if it's something you say you've done, that is by necessity ruled out. The other reason that uh, I don't think we can classify it a- a- as baptism here is uh, we have an example, and actually uh, Barney, Elder Barney talked about this last week in Luke 23, the thief on the cross. He's on the cross with Jesus, and he asks Jesus, Will you remember me in your kingdom? And Jesus tells him, Even today I will be with you in paradise. Baptism didn't factor into that equation So it's really hard to try to say it's a necessity if we can point to an example where it didn't happen. And then lastly, we really need to remember what baptism is. Uh, As Paul tells us in uh, Romans chapter 6, he says, "...it is the outward profession of our alignment with, with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection." So baptism is only the type pointing to what Christ did, what He accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. The type can't help us. The type does not help us. Only the real, only the genuine, only what Christ did can help us. We sing there's power in the blood, the one working blood. We don't sing there's power in the baptism. We do that for good reason. So when you factor all those into the equation, the fact that Jesus doesn't go on to describe it as water baptism, the fact that Scripture does not teach that baptism is a... Necessary act for salvation. The fact that we have the example in the thief of the cross, and the fact that uh, water baptism can be ruled out, you know, because that's an example where baptism didn't happen. So when when you put all those together, uh, I, I think it's safe to say that you know this is not talking about baptism. So then we need to talk about the possibilities of what it may be. Uh, The first possibility is Jesus is talking about the natural birthing process, born of water. The water breaks and the child is born. And remember, he is replying directly to what Nicodemus said. And what Nicodemus has just said is, can a man re-enter his mother's womb and be born a second time? So what Jesus may be responding is, he may be responding to Nicodemus saying, you must first be born of water, addressing what Nicodemus just said, being naturally born, the water breaks and, and, and the child is born. And then uh, you must be born of the Spirit. That's a that's a common interpretation and it does seem to kind of make some sense. It, it, it's Jesus kind of developing a contrast between natural birth and spiritual birth. And it kind of fits with the uh, the flow of the conversation if you look at, what Jesus is going to say next in uh, verse 6 where he says that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So he's kind of making that contrast between the two. So that's a possibility. Uh, Another possibility and there's actually several others too. These are some of the the more popular ones that I just wanted to address. And I encourage you to study these on your own and, and May the Holy Spirit lead you in direction of where he would. And if you figure it out, come tell me too, so I'll know. (laughs) The other possibility that that some folks will believe that Jesus is talking about here, when he says, born of water, and that is found in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. If you want to turn there, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Actually, I think we're going to read uh, 3 through 5. For we also, once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, which, by the way, there's another reason it couldn't be baptism, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So that's another popular view that this is kind of a one-for-one comparison with what Paul is saying here, with what Jesus was saying, talking about regeneration, that what Jesus means by being born of water is this washing of regeneration. It's a spiritual cleansing by the Holy Spirit, inside before the uh, Holy Spirit can inhabit the child of God. So it's a washing or cleansing of regeneration and they would take this to mean that, that Jesus is talking about a spiritual born of water and then obviously spiritual in the uh, being born of the Spirit. And there are a couple others too. There, uh, I know there's one in Ephesians 5 that, that other folks where there's a Paul talks about the washing of the word, so it's kind of like if there's something talked about washing, people can bring it back to being born of the water. But like I said, you know, I encourage you to study these and, and come to your own conclusions, and, and and let me know. And if you still can't figure it out, just ask Jeff Young; he, he will he'll he'll be able to tell you. All right, so moving along here, moving into verse six, Jesus moves on and says, making that contrast that you know, that big dichotomy between the flesh and the spirit, says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I tell you, you must be born again. So he really lays out this this great contrast, this great dichotomy between flesh and spirit. And it's really important to try to understand the two of them in order to not be confused by what he's saying. And, And, And really not just in this text alone, but if you you come to the whole of Scripture and you're confusing the flesh and the Spirit and mixing them and blending them together, you're going to be confused on a lot of different areas. That which is flesh stays flesh, because flesh is death and the Spirit is life. They're polar opposites. So we need to examine a little bit about what the flesh is in order to properly understand this. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Charles Spurgeon once said concerning the flesh and its, uh, and its worth, he said, When you feel yourself to be utterly unworthy, you've hit the truth. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, that's true. The flesh, uh, in contrast to the spirit, ha- has nothing positive to contribute. And when we talk about the flesh, we're talking about the whole of the flesh, the body, the mind, the, the uh, heart. All are corrupted equally. Uh, We can look at... uh, Let's look at Romans 8. um, Popular passage here that we can get a glimpse at what the flesh really is. So We look at Romans 8 uh, verses 5 through 8. It tells us, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. Those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit... For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. There's the contrast. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot please God. The flesh cannot please God. That's why, by necessity, a new birth, a miraculous birth, must happen because the flesh can't please God. And that's a clear didactic statement of fact by Paul and Romans here. There's no room in Paul's description here to try to salvage anything from the flesh, anything of value, anything positive. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.50, and speaking uh, in context here, the resurrection, he says, I say to you, brethren, the flesh... Cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Well, he's talking about the same thing, the the entrance into the kingdom of God. The flesh, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Paul's saying the same thing as Jesus here. It's not possible for the flesh. So, we just read two things. The flesh cannot please God, and the flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. How could something unpleasing or that cannot please God inherit his kingdom it doesn't make any sense. Those are two massive negatives. You can't add them up and get a positive somehow. Maybe in common core math but not in God's reality. The flesh cannot please God. But we can certainly attest and know that the flesh will try. It certainly wants to because it's fallen because it's corrupt. It'll it'll definitely try. It definitely it wants so badly to find something about itself that it can salvage as a positive. I mean, we hear the rationale. We've, we've worked through the rationale in our own minds even. Uh, we recognize, uh, we'll say things like, well, I know you know I've done some bad things in the past. I know I'm not the best person, but you know, am I really that bad? I, mean, I go to church read my Bible occasionally. My neighbor's not doing that, right? I'm not Hitler, right? That's what we do. That's our flesh it wants to rationalize. And it wants to take the spotlight off of itself and place it somewhere else, somewhere usually where it thinks it's there's something worse. So look over there, not here. Do not examine myself. But that's not the standard. The standard is not your neighbor over here, Hitler, or whatever you want to apply it, the standard is perfection. The standard is spotless. The standard is blameless, without even an allusion to a fraction, an infraction. The standard is Jesus Christ. The standard is the God-man. And unless you're willing to elevate yourself up to his level, I suggest you don't appeal to a standard, because only he can uphold, uphold that level. We have no business trying to appeal to any standard, so just get on your knees and abandon your flesh and appeal to Christ. It's only in him there's no other way that your flesh can salvage anything let's turn back to uh back to John here in uh I want to read actually from chapter one since it's right next door to where we are in chapter 3 here, that's something that ties in about the flesh and and the nature of which um, we become children of God and maybe even more so what our level of participation is in that. And we're going to look at John 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him... To them gave he the right to to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. So he's talking about children of God. They believed on his name. They were given this right. But how did they get that way? Who were born? Well, great, he's going to tell us. How were they born? Not of of blood. So there goes any claim you may have of, of any lineage. If you think you have... The right to be a child of God simply because of your blood, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, there goes your free will, so you can't claim that, nor of the will of man, so there goes any other hope in anything in mankind at all, but, but, of God. The new birth and salvation is of the Lord. As Barney said last Sunday, salvation is God's business. And that's the great contrast that uh, Jesus is laying out here. The great dichotomy in verse 6. Flesh is flesh and it equals death. Uh, There's no profit or hope in any of it. Cannot please God. Cannot enter his kingdom. But the spirit there is life and life eternally. And Jesus is going to say the same thing as he expands on it in John chapter 6. He says to his disciples, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and are life. The Spirit is what gives life. It's the life-giving Spirit. And we even know this even from the beginning of creation. Back in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the faces of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. So creation couldn't happen. Life cannot happen without the movement of the Spirit of God. And it's the same in the new birth. The sinner is regenerated becomes a new creation. And that's not possible without the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Those who have received the new birth are a new creation brought about by the Spirit of God. And Let me just say, if you're of the mindset to where you believe that you're in some way responsible for initiating the new birth, for becoming born again, that you contribute 10%, 20%, whatever whatever you think, and that you believe that we are a new creation you're essentially making yourself akin to a co-creator, if you say that. If you believe you're a new creation, new life has been made, and you are contributing to whatever degree, whether you think it's um, baptism, or uh, you said the sinner's prayer, or whatever it may be, you're making yourself a co-creator. That must sound incredibly repugnant to the Lord. Mm -hmm. The Spirit brings life, the flesh is flesh, and the Spirit is spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The two are opposite. And Jesus said, Marvel not. Do not marvel over this, Nicodemus. Do not be surprised when I tell you, you must be born from above, born again. So we're going to look at uh, verse 7 here, where he just said, uh, yeah, do not be amazed. When I say, you must be born again. And now he's going to get into this analogy, this comparison of the Spirit to the wind, and particularly the direction of which the wind blows. And at the end of verse 8, he says, So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So what he's describing above that, when he says, So is everyone, he's saying, In this way, this is how we know. So when we look above that, we know this is the description of how that happens, how someone is born of the Spirit, so or in this way. So he's about to tell us in in verse 8 here, uh, with this analogy of the wind and the spirit, before I get into that a little bit, I, I do want to reference something that I think kind of ties together there 's something we talk about frequently at GCA a passage that we look at frequently, uh, and that is in uh, in Romans nine Paul talks about the freedom of God in, in an analogy as the potter with the clay. The potter has the freedom to make One lump uh, for honorable use and another one for common use. The potter has that freedom. That's the liberty of God as a creator to do with his creation as he sees fit, as he pleases. And we're kind of talking about the same thing here uh, in verse 8. In the sense of the spirit has the freedom to move as it pleases as well, like the wind. God's creation is his to do with as he pleases. And he does so without influence, without any outsider influence. And it's interesting, I was thinking about this, that the idea in the artistic world, if you question a, an artist, an artiste, that's, that's something you shouldn't do because they're, they op- they're open to create however they please. And if you would question how their painting is, why it's this way then you just don't get it because that's abstract impressionism or whatever it may be. But those same people have no problem shaking their fist at God and questioning God for how he's created his creation. It's kind of funny how that works. So we, we have this, uh, this comparison of the spirit with the wind, expressing that the wind has the freedom to move about as it wills, the same way that... Uh, uh, we talked about in, in Romans 9 with the uh, the potter having the freedom over the clay to make one lump as he pleases and another one uh, for common use as well. So we'll just read uh, what he says here in, in, in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit." Those who are being born of the spirit are the passive participant of the spirit. God is completely responsible for the new birth. It's his enterprise for him to do with what he pleases. The direction from which the wind blows and where it settles and who it settles upon as the spirit totally up to God. It's not for us to say, it's not for us to determine any more than we can predict the wind, determine where the wind was, tell the wind where to blow it's it's totally up to god for his glory for his purpose by his own hands by an all-powerful god and you can say that to some people and they'll get angry and and want to fight you over it and and that will be absolutely repugnant and then you can say that to another individual and he will realize that he's a sinner and that his eternal security being in the hands of God is a precious thing. Because if it's in the hands of God, in the hands of an all-powerful God, he knows he can't mess it up, which he would if it was in his hands. It can't be changed, it can't be lost, it can't be stolen, it can't be taken. That's true peace. So, on the one hand, one individual, it's the aroma, from death unto death, and another individual from life unto life. And so is the way the spirit moves freely, unpredictably. And if you think that you can participate in the, the new birth, and you can dictate it, you can cause it to happen, well, then you also better be able to go outside and tell the wind to blow in the exact opposite direction, because that's exactly what it's saying here. So, what does it all mean? How can these things be? That, that's Nicodemus's reply. He's still in that uh, pharisaical mindset, that legalistic, humanistic perspective, trying to figure out how his flesh can accomplish this. And then Jesus replies, are you a teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? And I kind of want to close on that note with that question from Jesus. Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? The implication to the question is clear. How can Nicodemus be teaching Israel things of Yahweh, things of, uh, of the kingdom, things of God, and not understand the new birth. I think there's a further reaching application for it as well. And that is, if we are going to teach the gospel to others, that it is essential, it is necessary that we get this understanding and this teaching of the new birth correct. We get it right. Because it's essential to the gospel. And we are commanded to share it with others, And we are commanded to teach it to others. And if we're going to do so, we need to do it accurately. And here's the key, in the most God-glorifying way. And that's why this is so important, because it is the most God-glorifying way. Because it strips the flesh of man away and puts all the glory on God alone. Because He is the sole initiator, the sole actor, the sole completer. That's why it's so important. Now, I want to look at uh, a couple different passages in light of that, trying to understand why it's so important, why it must needs be this way, where God is the sole initiator, the sole actor, and we're the passive party. Why does it need to be that way? Why is it important that it's that way? Certainly God has, like we said, has freedom to create his creation as he sees fit, but he chose this particular way for a specific Purpose. So let's let's look at that and try to understand that purpose, and we'll close here this morning. Romans chapter eleven. We're going to look at verse thirty three here, the last few verses here. And context here being that that uh, this is chapter eleven, where uh, Paul has been discussing the partial hardening that has happened to Israel because, and because of its salvation, has come to the Gentiles until. The Gentiles' time is fulfilled, and then a deliverer, Christ, will come from Zion and remove ungodliness from Jacob, remove it from Israel. And this is Paul's reaction to that, in reaction to the grand salvific process that God is laying out. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, Or who has first given to him that it may be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Don't misinterpret that as just a nice way to kind of end the chapter and, and, and close his thought. He's giving you an explicit reason why the salvation of God has to be this manifold, this amazing, this unsearchable. It's because it gives him the most glory. And that's really what it's all about. It's unfathomable. It's amazing. And then I also want to look at one other verse. And that is in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to be looking at verses 5 and 7 here in Ephesians 2. I know this is kind of jumping into the middle of the thought here. But in Ephesians 2 verses 5 through 7 he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Why? Well, this is the answer right here. This is the answer. Why the new birth must all be of Christ? Why salvation must all be of God? Any, Any question you want to ask, this is the answer right here. So that in the ages to come, he might show his surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. His surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. It's God's plan. And he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. In the new birth, in the salvific process, it's utterly of him alone. And it's so that throughout eternity and eternity... In eternity, the riches of His grace and His glory are being echoed again and again, reverberating throughout perpetuity, throughout eternity. He gets all the glory because He deserves all the glory, every portion of it. Soli Deo Gloria, for glory to God alone. That's your reason. There's no other reason. There's no other purpose necessary in the new birth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your finished work. We thank you for the the work of the, the Spirit in the new birth that you move on lives that you determine. And we praise you for it. And we give you all the glory for it, Lord. And we just pray that your Son would be magnified and gloried for he is worthy now forever throughout eternity. Amen and amen, Lord. We just pray that you would be with us today, be with our pastor as he is traveling home, we ask for a safe return. And we thank you for this congregation here. Help us to love and care for one another. And we pray that what we do and what we say will magnify your name and will bring you the most glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.